baptist mode of baptism by immersion really upholds this beautiful picture given in scripture of the death burial and resurrection of christ and then finally last week we i think we should all have come away with from this passage with a great confidence in our salvation because as we saw in verse 12 the very power that raised jesus from the dead is the power of god that saves us we are, we're buried with Christ, we're united with him, and raised to walk in newness of life. Well, today our text um, will, will be verses 13 through 15. And based on all of this that we've, that we've looked at in verses 8 and 12, we have sort of the culmination of this section here. As we take away from our text three points today. The first idea that I'd like for us to leave with is the fact that dead men are made alive in Christ. Secondly, I'd like for us to see that our debts have been canceled at the cross, our sin debts, that is. And then lastly, we'll look at the fact that the demons and demonic powers are disarmed and defeated by Christ. So that's not perfect alliteration, but there's a lot of D's in there for John. I know he'll appreciate that. Um, let's, Let's take a look at our text for today, beginning in verse 13 now, if you will. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Let us pray together once again. Our God in heaven, we are uh, we're coming before you this morning during our time of the proclamation of your word, the preaching from Scripture, Lord, and we ask that you guide our time, that you rule over uh, this time of study, and Lord, may it truly be a time of worship through the preached word. Father, we ask for guidance. We ask that, that you would, would lend your spirit to to lead us into all truth, that you would protect us, Lord, from from error, prevent us from going astray as we work through the scriptures, which we know are your true words and the, the very embodiment of truth for us, God. We ask that your Son be glorified, that we maintain a high view of you, of your Son, and of your word. We pray this in Christ. Amen. So, the first phrase from our text this morning, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. I'd like for us to take a minute and really bore down into what it means to be spiritually dead. One of the pillars of Christian orthodoxy is the doctrine of original sin. Now, when I say original sin, I'm not talking about the original sin as in the first sin. What I mean by original sin is is original in the adjective form. In other words, uh, the sin nature that we were born with the sin that accompanies us at our origination. As the psalmist says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now David is not saying in that phrase that somehow his mother committed sin in his conception. Rather, he's saying that from his conception, at the outset of his being, he was already in a state that was inclined towards sin. I think understanding this doctrine of original sin is key for us to recognize our deadness and therefore to understand what is required and therefore what was accomplished in salvation. 
Paul made this very clear in another of his epistles to the Romans. Romans 5.12, we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Why did death spread to all men? Because sin spread to all men. Everyone born of Adam, born physically on this earth, is an inheritant of original sin. Paul also speaks in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The reason that all have sinned and fall short is because we have all been born with a natural inclination towards sin. Anyone who's ever raised a child will, will tell you that they did not have to teach their children to lie. They did not have to teach their children to be selfish, to covet, to break all of the Ten Commandments. There was no instruction necessary for that child to become a sinful person. It was the most natural thing that they could possibly have done. And the same can be said for, for all of us. As, as R.C. Sproul used to remind us, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Now, if this is, if this is offensive to us, um, there, there are a number of people who would bristle at the idea that our sin originates in our federal head, that is Adam, and is therefore imputed to us. But if we have a problem with imputation, we really have a problem with salvation. So let me just caution us not to be too offended by the imputation of sin, because it's that same doctrine of imputation by which we are granted righteousness in Christ. Consider 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So this, this imputation works in two ways. Okay, We definitely are, are re, uh, receiving at our birth this, this spirit of sin and this inclination towards sin, and therefore we all sin. That creates a need for us to have a Savior. But then that Savior also imputes righteousness to us that overcomes our sin. So it's important to understand and recognize uh, the, the federal headship, both of the first Adam through which we receive sin and the second Adam, the perfect Adam, Christ, through whom we receive life and forgiveness. Let's turn our attention back to Colossians 2.13 now, to the idea of transgressions. Again, the first phrase, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The evidence of our deadness is given as transgression. So I think it's very important for us to take a second and just understand what that transgression means there. When we look up transgression in Webster's Dictionary, we see that this is the infringement or violation of a law, command, or duty. The infringement of a violation of a law. Okay? What this means then is that the transgression in view in Colossians 2.13 is a transgression of God's eternal moral law. We're told in 1 John 3.4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So the transgression that's in view here is a transgression of God's standard of perfection. The Westminster Shorter Catechism also states this very succinctly with the question, what is sin? The answer, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's what sin is. 
So the question becomes, how are we to know this law that we are transgressing when we sin? And the answer to that, I think, is, is, is quite simple. We go to Scripture. God has revealed to us the standard of His perfect righteousness on the pages of Scripture. We see in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that's God's specific revelation of His perfect standard of righteousness. We have that in Scripture, and this is why we hold such a high view of Scripture. It points us to what is necessary for our righteousness before God. Now the bad news of the law of God is this. We can't uphold it. We cannot fulfill the demands of God's perfect righteousness. However, the good side of this is Christ has fulfilled that law perfectly on our behalf, and that righteousness is granted to us at our conversion. Well, if we consider all of this together, it really paints a fairly dire picture for us. If we are dead in our sin, if we are uh, we're guilty of transgressions of God's perfect standard, which is his law, what this really points to is the idea of complete inability of man before God, the complete inability of man. Um, we're going to look at, at Romans 8. I want you to turn there, and I'd like for us to, to, to kind of work through just a little bit of this. But when we're, when we're talking about the complete inability of man, we're talking about deadness. We're talking about real deadness. Um, not, uh, when we're dead in our, in our trespasses, we're not mostly dead. Like the Princess Bride, right? We, we remember the, the, the movie The Princess Bride. And Billy Crystal taught us that there's a big difference between mostly dead and really dead right? Our sin is more like the Wicked Witch of the East from the Wizard of Oz when, when Dorothy's house dropped on her. If you'll recall, the Munchkin coroner came out um, with a certificate of death saying that he'd thoroughly examined her, he'd examined the witch, and she's not only merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead. Well, that's the category of deadness that we find ourselves in, in our spiritually lost state, in our fallen state. Not merely dead, but most sincerely dead. So as we, as we consider this, I'd like for us to, to turn our attention to Romans 8, beginning in verse 6. Romans 8 and verse 6. We read there, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that would be the, the fallen, um, depraved mind, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the point that I would like for us to take from this is that in our spiritually dead state, the state in which we are born into in our lostness, we are in a position of complete inability. Notice at the end of verse 7, it doesn't say that those who do not submit to God's law um, will not. It says, indeed, the mind that is hostile to God cannot submit to his God. We, we, have, an, uh, we have an inability, an abject inability before God to incline ourselves to him. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this really drives home the point for us that as we reference the fact that we began in a state of deadness in our transgressions before God, we violated his law, we do not have the ability to please him on any level. 
And that's a very stark position for us to start off in as we work through this text. Well, as we, as we transition to the second half of this, of this verse 13, um, I, I'd like to announce that this is the good news. Okay, While we were still in our transgressions and in our sin, the second half of verse 13 reads, He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And this is why I thought it was important for us to go back and regroup those previous verses in the second chapter of Colossians. Because we saw these pictures of circumcision and baptism. This is what those pictures were pointing us toward. When we are baptized in Christ, we die to that sin that, that, that creates our spiritual deadness. And when we are raised again, we're raised, we're quickened, as the, as the King James Version uh, says. We're quickened to a newness of life with him. I'd like for us to look at John 1. John 1. This is a passage that we look to frequently as we, as we look at the prologue of John's gospel. Some wonderful, amazing theology in this. But John uh, seems to, to point very specifically to this idea of, of human inability and the need for God to, to rescue us, not merely to, to strengthen us, not merely to heal us, but to create life within us. John 1 verse 11 reads, He, that's Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, get this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the new birth that Colossians 2.13 speaks to. We are born not of flesh, nor of the desires of the flesh, nor of the internal will of man. We are born, we are born again spiritually only when we're born of God. This is a, a concept that Nicodemus struggled to understand. When Nicodemus came to visit Jesus late at night, he admitted to Christ that he must be from God. Jesus, he's saying, you've got to be from God because of these miracles that you're doing. Notice Jesus' response. Turn to John 3. I want you to see this. I was just going to read it, but, but let's, we're right there in John. Let's go to John 3. Notice what Jesus says. He didn't even acknowledge or affirm Jude, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Nicodemus' uh, statement that he believes based on the miracles. What Jesus said to him was this, John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then when, G when, when, when Nicodemus uh, demonstrated his ignorance by asking a question about returning to his mother's room, kind of a nonsensical question there, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, in verse, uh, verse 5, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, spiritually regenerated, reborn, there will be no entrance into the kingdom of God. We saw this also in Romans 6. I'll just read this to you. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our old physical life is insufficient for pleasing God. We have to be born again to walk in newness of life. Of life. This new birth is a necessary condition for being counted among the redeemed. 
So if we believe what the Bible says about our spiritual deadness, and we understand what this means concerning human inability before God, we are left with only one conclusion, and that is this. For a lost soul to be saved, a gracious act of recreation by the sovereign God of the universe is required. Nothing else can ever produce the faith necessary for this forgiveness of transgression. Having established our deadness in sin and having considered this necessity of rebirth, let's look ahead to what was accomplished at the crucifixion of Christ to bring about this forgiveness. Verse 14, Colossians 2:14. We see in this verse that the sin debts of the believers are canceled at the cross. We read in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I will be very transparent and honest with you. I I looked at this passage when I was first assigned uh, this sermon, and I thought, wow, this is just going to be a great, fun passage to teach. And when I hit this verse and I began breaking it down and considering everything that was in this verse, it really brought me up short. This, th- there are just some incomprehensible truths in verse 14. First of all, as a result of original sin, lost people find themselves in a position of spiritual indebtedness to God. So not only are we dead in our sins, because of those sins, we find ourselves indebted to God because of those sins. And I think I've used this illustration before, but when we consider the fact that any sin is a violation of God's eternal law, we can say that every sin we ever commit is ultimately against God, okay? If I sin against my wife, or if I sin against my friend, or if I sin against my children, that's a horrible thing. But there is a way of reconciling that by by me making up for the sin that I've committed. When I sin against an infinitely holy God, it creates, therefore, an infinite discrepancy from the righteousness of God to my wickedness as one who has violated the perfect standard of God's righteousness. So when we sin, when we find ourselves in this condition of original sin and and we violate the law of God, what we actually do is create an indebtedness to God that we can never, ever, ever overcome. But look at the beauty of this. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, this infinite discrepancy represented by us violating and breaking the law of God is expunged. It's wiped out by this perfectly holy God. Now, how does he do that? That's the question. This is a, we're told later in this, in this same section that this is not only a debt, um, it is hostile to us. So you can imagine in our, in our fallen state, in our inability before God, when we create this debt by violating the laws and the precepts of God's holiness, we see when that's applied to us, it's, it's like a, a condemning decree upon us. And we see this debt represented in our violation of God's law. How does God just wipe that out and expunge that? Well, it's an amazing thing. Let's turn to Romans 5. Back to Romans 5. We're going to jump around the Bible a bit this morning. I want to look at this passage from Romans 5, beginning in verse 18. Romans 5, 18. We saw earlier in this chapter that the the sin, the original sin 
uh, that, that we receive and we inherit from Adam. Uh, we, we saw that in, in chapter 5, verse 12. But as we look further in the chapter, we read in verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what, what I want us to take from this is, I'm, I'm not setting forth here uh, the idea that somehow the law is creating transgression. Okay, we, we see in verse 20 there that the law came in so that transgression would increase. Don't, don't read that, that word increase as somehow attributing wickedness to the law. Remember, the law is just the standard of God's holiness. It's the standard of his perfection. Sin is increased and transgression is increased only in the sense that it's made obvious. It's made clear. It's made plain to us. So when we receive the law of God, these, these, these laws that create decrees against us, that are hostile to us, what that is doing is pointing us to our need for a Savior. It's pointing us to the only one against whom there are no hostile decrees, the only one that has no violation of God's law and is therefore capable and qualified to atone for our sins. So how was this justice of God satisfied? It was satisfied when the debt consisting of hostile decrees was removed. How did he remove it? He did so when he nailed it to the cross. And this is the phrase in this verse that just stops me short every time I read it. Verse 14, uh, we'll call it 14b. He has taken it, that is our, our decrees of debt and, and our, our decrees of wickedness. He has taken that out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In our justification, God not only, he didn't just expunge and wipe away our guilt. That's an impossibility for a perfectly holy and just God. Justice must be served for God to be God. So he didn't just wipe it away. He wiped it away by nailing that sin debt to the cross of Christ. He laid our sin debts on Christ and nailed his son to the tree along with the debt of sin that we owed to God. He took those hostile decrees that, that his righteous law pronounced upon us and he eliminated them uh, for all of those who would trust in him. That's an amazing, amazing thing. I would invite you this afternoon to find some quiet time and just sit and think and contemplate what it means for a holy God to take the sin debt of all who would believe and lay it on his son and sacrifice it at the cross of Calvary. We read in Galatians 3.13 that Jesus removed the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is Galatians 3.13. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So understand here, again, I'm not attempting to diminish the law of God. I'm not attempting to say, oh, the law of God is done away with. No, what's done away with is the penalty of death that comes from our inability to obey the law of God. The law of God is as just today as it's ever been. 
but we could not fulfill it. Praise God that his son Jesus Christ did on our behalf. Look, look once more with, you, with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We all know the verse from Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a great verse to memorize. We should all have that. But I love this section. I'd like for us to continue reading, beginning in verse 23, but going down through verse 26. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is, as a substitute in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. Get this verse. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Think about this for just a second. God perfectly holy righteous humans dead in their sin and transgression the law of god is given which highlights magnifies exemplifies our fallenness before christ and our inability to please god then that very law provided the standard by which jesus lived a perfect life he never violated the law he fulfilled every aspect of the law of god and as such was able to die a death not for his sin, but a death that would be attributed to those who were lawbreakers and lawless. Remember, sin is lawlessness. So when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he did so as the eternal spotless lamb, the once for all sacrifice for those of us who are lawbreakers by nature, who can do nothing but break the law of God. Jesus Christ satisfied the demands of that law on our behalf. In, in, in doing this, verse 26, this made God just, he's the standard of perfection, and the justifier for all of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Praise God that he is not only perfectly just, but he is also the justifier of sinful men. Well, our final sort of takeaway from, from this passage today is found in verse 15. Um, here we're going to see that the demons, the powers of evil, the forces of evil, were disarmed and defeated at the cross of Calvary. Verse 15 from Colossians 2 reads, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. We need to ask ourselves a few questions about this verse, I think. First of all, who are these rulers and authorities? How has he made a public display of them? And in what sense has Christ triumphed over them? Well, for the first question, who are these rulers? I think we can connect this to Ephesians chapter 6. And this is a passage that you probably all recognize as I read this. Um, Ephesians 6, 11, we read there, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Okay, so we see the devil introduced here as the one we are defending against. Verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we see right there that, that as, we are, as we are battling in our Christian life, we are not fighting merely against flesh and blood. We are fighting against the powers of evil. It's connected here to the schemes of the devil. Also consider Ephesians 2, which is another passage speaking to the deadness of our sinful condition. 
Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, how? According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So when we see transgression, when we see sin, we see oftentimes that that is connected to these powers and these authorities of evil. We see that uh, th this, this effect is that this world is, is consumed, or, or uh, up to the time of Christ was really consumed by the, the forces of evil and the power of Satan. Jesus himself even predicted the downfall of these rulers in John chapter 12. I'd like for you to, to lay your eyes on this passage. It's a little bit longer, but, but it's very important for us, I think, to recognize what we're dealing with here. In foretelling his death in John 12, um, Jesus prayed for God to glorify himself. And the people who were standing there as Jesus is, is, is calling out to God to glorify himself actually hear the voice of God. Look at John 12, verse 28. John 12, verse 28. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard this were saying that it had thunders, that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. So there was confusion at the voice of God. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now notice this, upon the authority of the very voice of God, Jesus proclaims in verse 31, Now judgment is upon this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So Jesus came to earth on a mission of redemption, but a major part of that mission involved the disarming of the rule and authority of evil. Well, the second question we ask about this verse 15 in Colossians 2 is how has he made a public display of these rulers and power? And for this, I'd like for us to look to Matthew 12. The Pharisees had accused Jesus of casting out demons. And remember, they accused him of casting them out by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus responded that if Satan cast himself out, he would be divided and unable to stand. So we see in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 28, Jesus says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? That's a hypothetical question. Clearly, the strong man must be bound, right? Jesus' final statement here, and then he will plunder his house. So the question must be asked, did Christ cast out uh, demons by the Spirit of God? The answer to that is a resounding yes. Absolutely. So according to Matthew 12, the kingdom of God had most certainly come, and it came in a very public way. Think about all the times that Jesus cast out demons in his earthly ministry. Uh, think about Luke 4, when Jesus cast out a man in the synagogue, like somebody at church has an unclean spirit, and Jesus cast out this spirit. I started to make a, a joke about youth pastors at this point, but I, we've got a couple of former youth pastors, so I, I decided to stay away from that. Um, but, but we also see in, in, in Luke chapter 4, a little bit farther down in the text, after healing Simon's mother-in-law, he healed many others and cast out demons. In Matthew 12, <clears throat> Jesus healed a man who was deaf and mute, who had a demon. In Mark 5, we remember in the country of the Gerasenes, he cast out the demons from the wild man in the tombs 
And what did he do? He permitted them to go into the pigs and ran them down the ravine. Right? Matthew 9, there was another mute man possessed of a demon, and Jesus cast him out. And then in Luke 9, we see Jesus casting demons from a boy that the disciples could not heal. And Jesus had the power, even over the demons who were too strong for the disciples to cast out, Jesus exercised power over those. In addition to casting out demons, Jesus healed people, he fed people, he raised people from the dead, and all of this served to publicly demonstrate the defeat of the forces of evil. So when Jesus came and, and, and established his authority and power, even the demons shudder and are defeated by him. Well, the final question regarding uh, verse 15 of Colossians 2 is this. In what sense has Christ triumphed over these powers and forces of darkness? If Christ has conquered evil, we have to ask the question, why does the world look the way it does today? Right? That, that's got to be in the back of our mind because we all see the news. Um, we all see death happening. We're praying even today for two families who have experienced death with, within within their, their families. And we have friends that, that we understand are, are dealing with cancer and, 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 and health issues. We see the, uh, all of the corruption in government. We see so many things around us. And we have to ask the question, in what sense has Christ triumphed over evil? And I would suggest that maybe the, the answer to this question is in perspective. Think about this for just a bit. Before the universe was created, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit covenanted together to bring about redemption. We call this the eternal covenant of redemption. Satan, in his rebellion, set out to undo the, at least the effects of that covenant. This began in the Garden of Eden. He tempted Adam and Eve to sin. In so doing, we see the way that sin entered the world and impacted the entire planet all throughout time and history. Throughout the Old Testament, Satan made every effort to disrupt the line of the Messiah, to intercept the chosen one. Consider all the attacks of evil on God's plan throughout history. We can think back to the incredible evil that existed prior to the flood. It was so bad and so wicked that the perfect holiness of God demanded a flood that would wipe out all but, but Noah and his family. Think about the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament and how they are continually ensnared by the sin of idolatry. Consider at the time of Jesus' birth when King Herod's sinful desire for power led him to murder all of the male children in and around Bethlehem at the time of Christ's birth. Satan, even when Christ had been born, and was about to begin his public ministry, Satan directly tempted Christ to sin in the wilderness, knowing that if he, could, if he could make Christ stumble into one of these sins, he would be disqualified and unable to fulfill this covenant of redemption. In all these things, the forces of evil um, work together to try to thwart the eternal covenant of redemption between God the Father and God the Son. But at the cross, everything that evil had endeavored to do failed. Because Christ came on the scene, the perfect Son of God, the perfect Messiah, the once-for-all sacrifice, the spotless Lamb, living a life of absolute perfection, fulfilling down to the most minute detail every element of God's law, which symbolizes His perfect standard. And He did that for all of those who would trust and believe in Him. 
Remember, remember as, as we're thinking about Christ crushing the powers of evil, consider Genesis 3 verse 15. We remember the curse that God placed upon the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, that is Jesus, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So at the cross, Satan bit Jesus' head while Jesus was in, excuse me, let me say that correctly. On the cross, the serpent, that is Satan, bit Jesus on the heel as Christ was in the process of crushing his head. From the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. The mission was complete. At that point, Satan was truly defeated. Today, we live in the ever-growing expanse of that victory. While it looks dark around us, if you consider time, the, the, the fullness of time, all of human history, um, I can't think of another period of time that I'd rather live in, if you're thinking in chunks of 500 years or more, right? Today, we are seeing the gospel go to all nations. Even today, that stone that we read about in Daniel, in his vision, that stone that toppled the four earthly kingdoms, those four ancient evil kingdoms, continues to grow and fill the earth, just as Daniel prophesied. This victory was won by Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we today, as believers, are participants in the glorious reign of Christ. I'd like to read a lengthy section to you by way of conclusion. Um, before I do that, just let's, let's just kind of go back and remember what has been accomplished in these three verses. We noted that the spiritual deadness due to the transgressions of God's law had taken root and that's the place that we all found ourselves in our lost condition. We saw that Jesus takes spiritually dead people and breathes new life into them. And he does this by canceling their infinite sin debt between them and God. And this is all a result of their transgression of his perfect standard of righteousness. In canceling this debt, how did he do it? He nailed our sin debts to the cross with his son. In so doing, he not only expunged these decrees, but he disarmed Satan and the demonic rulers and authorities who accuse us before God. And he did this in a very public way. This was all accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection as he claimed victory over sin. I'd like for you to turn with me to Romans 8. And, and I'd like to read this lengthy passage that, that to me is one of the more triumphant um, passages in all of Scripture. And I, I can never read this without really getting excited and fired up. So uh, somebody might need to hold Evan down back there as we read from, from Romans 8. I know he's going to get fired up about this. But let, let's begin in verse 16, and we'll skip around just a bit. Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Considering sufferings, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Skipping ahead to verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or drought. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, listen, all these things, even in being led as a sheep to the slaughter, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors because of what Christ accomplished on the cross taking dead sinners, breathing life into them, wiping away the the indebtedness of our sin, nailing those debts to the cross, and conquering the forces of evil in the process. Let us praise God today for what he has done in Christ. Let's pray. Our God, I am overwhelmed by the truths of this scripture. I am amazed at what a great and mighty God you are. That, that, that one as powerful as you would be tender in mercy towards your people, redeeming, reviving, giving new birth and new life to dead sinners. God, we praise you for that. We thank you, Lord, for your salvation in Christ. We thank you for what you accomplished in him. May we live every day in the victory that you have won in Christ. And may we give glory to your name through every step of the way. We pray this in Jesus. Amen.